From the Financial Times in London, I'm Polita Clark, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Today we're looking at Ukraine, the problem child of Europe that's now at the centre of the Donald Trump impeachment inquiry. We'll be asking, what is it about this country that creates so much trouble in far-flung places? And could it end up harming Donald Trump's chances of re-election next year? I'm here with our Europe editor, Ben Hall, who's recently back from his second trip to Ukraine in the last six months. So, Ben, what makes it such a turbulent country? Probably because it's the ultimate borderland country in Europe, caught between Russia, previously the Russia Empire, and then obviously part of the Soviet Union, but now on the eastern edge of the European Union. And the country is essentially torn between the two, although one would have to say in the last five years, it's become more clearly a country with Western European leanings than pro-Russian ones, partly as a consequence, of course, of the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014 and then the Russian-backed insurgency in the eastern regions of the Donbass. So it's partly a consequence of geography and also partly a consequence of its history. This is a country that has not got a long history of independence. It's only been 30 years since the breakup of the Soviet Union, not even 30 years since it became independent. So this is a country still trying to find its identity and its place in the world, place in Europe. Right. And it's only been independent since 91, as you say, and it's already had two revolutions and what looks like a revolving cast of leaders. Why is that? Well, in some respects, this is arguably a healthy sign in the sense that it shows that this is a country with a sort of competitive democratic system where you get alternations of power. And that's obviously a stark contrast with neighbouring Russia. I think it's because it is a country of competing power centres, essentially, and that effect is amplified by powerful oligarchs in the country whose large fortunes fuel this competitive system, which clearly in the past has verged on turmoil and revolution. As you said, two revolutions, both of them have essentially been tussles over Russian influence in the country. Yeah. Now, you were there in March and September, before and after the April presidential election. That brought Volodymyr Zelensky, a television comedian, to power. How were Ukrainians adjusting to their new president? Well, when I was there in March, seeing politicians and government members, there was clearly a founder regime feel about the administration of Petro Poroshenko, the outgoing president at that time. He was way behind in the polls and he was about to give way in a landslide to Vladimir Zelensky. I think there was a huge amount of scepticism about Zelensky. For understandable reasons, this is the only experience this guy had of politics was in fiction. And um, he did literally play. He literally did play a history teacher who becomes president, a sort of honest, run of the mill bloke who is vaulted into this position of power. And he had become a hugely popular and endearing kind of figure in Ukrainian and interestingly in Russian sort of cultural life. So I think Ukrainians were genuinely baffled about how this guy could be, have got himself into this situation, had no political party, no political experience or anything. But still, he won in a landslide, clearly because he surfed this wave of anti-establishment feeling, this desire to clear away the corrupt political elite. And in September, clearly there is still scepticism about him and exactly what he can achieve, but also huge enthusiasm. There was a sort of real energy in Kiev. It may, of course, have had something to do with the fact that it was still a balmy summer and the place was brimming with young people enjoying the late summer season. But I mean, I think there is an energy that has been released in Ukraine because people feel that this country is changing. 
Yeah, clearly he's got quite an extraordinary reform agenda. It really is exceptional. I mean, to be fair, a lot of these reforms were actually devised by his predecessor. They then just got stuck in the legislative machine and obviously vested interests made sure that they didn't get anywhere. So he's unleashing this pent-up desire for reform, but it's still nonetheless extraordinary. Literally scores of bills have been rammed through Parliament Many of the things that Ukraine's Western backers, the IMF, the EU want Ukraine to do to make it a more business-friendly environment and one where it's less prone to corruption. And so it really is quite impressive, the stuff that they're putting through, often with very little scrutiny. And even some of those people in government accept that they will make mistakes on the way. They just hope that they'll be around long enough with enough power to correct it a little bit further down the line. So Mr Zelensky has a hugely ambitious agenda and obviously the outcome is going to be incredibly important for Ukraine. But what about Russia? Well, I think Russia's obviously this overbearing neighbour which has conducted a war of aggression against the country for the last five years, as well as annexing Crimea. So Zelensky, on the one hand, needs to cut a deal to achieve peace in the East. And he's gone about that by offering some sort of concessions to try and get talks going. That is actually Zelensky's number one objective, is to try and bring an end to the fighting in the East, which has cost well over 13,000 lives, an extraordinary mid-intensity war. But the second thing is that Zelensky and Zelensky's team think they have one powerful weapon that they can deploy against Putin, and that is the example of success. If they can actually turn around Ukraine and turn it into a more dynamic economy that is less corrupt, that is more stable, and that is definitely heading into the Western European sort of orbit, if you like, that would be a very powerful symbol of change and one which could inspire domestic opponents of Vladimir Putin. Obviously, absolutely remains to be seen whether they can do anything like as much as that to show that Ukraine can be a real success. If Putin were watching Zelensky create this democratic paradise on his doorstep, what would be his reaction? There are many people in Ukraine and the West who think that Putin will do everything to stop this from happening and that could even, if he wanted to, turn up the dial on violence in the East. Or even that if he eventually gets some kind of peace deal in the East, if these two regions are returned to Ukrainian sovereignty, it would be legitimising the kind of bandit, Kremlin-supported operatives there who would then disrupt Ukrainian policymaking and democracy from the inside. So there's always a fear that in any scenario, Russia is out to destabilise its neighbour because that's a way of extending its own influence and strength. It took Mr Zelensky quite a while before he had his first press conference, which I imagine added to people's scepticism about how he was actually going to perform. It lasted 14 hours and he was so exhausted at the end of it, he was literally stammering. But I just wonder, how did he actually emerged from that lengthy and probably rather searing experience? I think with his reputation enhanced somewhat in Ukraine, he did it in a sort of trendy food market in downtown Kiev, wasn't that far from where we were staying, and it was well presented. He was sitting around a big table with lots of other reporters with plates of food, and it was very much the image of modern Ukraine that he wants to project. Cool Kiev. Cool Kiev, exactly. But, I mean, the impressive thing was that he clearly had a better grasp on the detail of policy than he did earlier in the summer, where business representatives and others who had met him may have been sort of pleased by his good intentions and his rhetoric, but were frankly a bit appalled by his ignorance of economic and other kind of policymaking. He didn't seem to be across everything that he was then soon going to have to get to grips with. 
in these 14 hours, I mean, he answered a lot of questions in a lot of detail and I think surprised a lot of people. I mean, the other thing that was really quite extraordinary was the way he batted away a lot of the questions about Donald Trump and about the pressure that the American president had allegedly put him under to open up a probe into one of Donald Trump's domestic opponents, which has now landed the US president in this impeachment inquiry. Now, before we get on to the inquiry itself, it's curious to me that Ukraine has always been quite a magnet for international political consultants like Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign manager, and indeed Rudy Giuliani, Mr Trump's lawyer. What were these sorts of people doing there in the first place? As we mentioned before, Ukraine is a competitive democracy. And we also mentioned the sort of influence of the oligarchs who have injected quite a lot of money into the Ukrainian political system. And that, together with a sort of history of looking for Western approval and Western backing, there was clearly a tradition of reaching out to Western political advisers to give them the best sort of advice on political techniques, but also perhaps to put them in good stead with Western governments. And people like Paul Manafort made a fortune, essentially, out of advising Viktor Yanukovych, one of Ukraine's former presidents, who took power, lost power, and Manafort helped him to regain that power in 2010. And then he got turfed out in the Maidan revolution. Yanukovych fled to Russia. He had obviously pro-Russian leanings. And Manafort's work for Yanukovych at the time alarmed American diplomats who said this was working against American interests. Mm. But he did it anyway because the money was clearly so important. And Rudy Giuliani, likewise, has worked for different people. But it's a place where there is a lot of money to be made. So it's a lucrative market for political operatives, but also for businessmen, one of whom, of course, is Hunter Biden, son of Joe Biden, former US vice president, and now a Democrat hoping to be nominated by his party to be their candidate in next year's US presidential election. What drew him to Ukraine? I think it was the same thing. He, in 2014, was recruited to the board of Ukraine's largest commercial gas producer, company called Burisma, owned by a small oligarch, I suppose you might say, well, the fact he's quite a burly, uh, <laughs> imposing figure physically, but Mikola Zlochevsky happened to be the minister responsible for doling out gas licences. And one of the allegations is that he essentially acquired a lot of these gas production licences while he was in power, and therefore it was an abuse of his power. But anyway, Hunter Biden served on this board and was reportedly paid about $50,000 a month, which is a pretty extraordinary figure. We know very little about what he actually did on this board, and there is no evidence that he aided and abetted anything illegal or did anything illegal himself. But people are puzzled as to why he should be involved in a company like this and what he was really doing there. And the most simple explanation is that he gives the company a kind of reputation-enhancing presence on the board because of the fact his father was vice president. Of course. So let's just jump forward a little bit and look at what led to the impeachment inquiry in Washington. There was a now notorious phone conversation between Mr Trump and Mr Zelensky in July. Now, what exactly was Mr Trump asking Mr Zelensky to do for him? Well... The allegation against Mr. Trump is that he was withholding US military aid to Kiev in order to force Mr. Zelensky and his administration to open up inquiries into both the role of Joe Biden in allegedly killing off a anti-corruption inquiry involving Burisma 
And secondly, an investigation into whether Ukraine was responsible for hacking into the servers of the DNC and Hillary Clinton rather than Russia. The thing is, there have been no evidence to back up these allegations. And so far, the Ukrainians have really tried to avoid being sucked into this political trap. Right. So this conversation in July has come only a few months after Mr Zelensky's election on a platform of anti-corruption. So how does he respond to Mr Trump? Well, I think what was slightly shocking about the tenor of the transcript of this conversation was how craven Mr. Zelensky seemed. He was almost fawning, telling the president that he'd been a great teacher for Zelensky and that Zelensky also wanted to drain the swamp. The tone was rather ingratiating. But actually, what was interesting was that he never really agreed to, caved into any of the pressure from Donald Trump and subsequent evidence, for example, texts between US officials that were submitted to the Congressional Inquiry, suggest that repeatedly the Ukrainians refused to succumb to US pressure and they, for example, refused to issue a statement saying that they were going to conduct such an investigation which the Americans wanted before agreeing to a face-to-face interview between the US and Ukrainian leaders. So it sounds as if he's been quite deft in his handling of what is obviously an extremely sensitive and difficult situation because he needs to keep on side with the existing president and potentially the new president. Would you agree that he's handled it quite well to date? Yes, I think so far he has. And I think the reason is that the Ukrainians are desperate to stay out of this. And they know, of course, that there's a chance, a strong chance, that Trump will lose the 2020 election and then they'll be looking at a Democrat president. So they don't want to alienate the Democrats by taking sides in this. They need to preserve good relations with Washington and with Congress because Ukraine needs American backing in order to try and bring Vladimir Putin back to the negotiating table in order to secure peace in eastern Ukraine. And then there's a third reason, which is that Zelensky was elected as the anti-corruption president. And the reason why Ukraine has such a problem with corruption is the judicial system courts, judges, but also prosecutors and the abuse of those figures for private political or commercial ends. And the last thing that Zelensky could really be seen to be doing is doing Trump's bidding to abuse the prosecutorial system and open up an investigation for American political purposes. Right. And there's also a bit of a corruption cloud hanging over Mr Zelensky himself in terms of the billionaire oligarch Igor Kolomoski. Now, what's the story there? Well, Zelensky was swept to power on this anti-corruption ticket, but people in Ukraine have always been suspicious about whether he is really his own man or whether he is a creature himself of a kind of powerful business interest in the form of Igor Kolomoisky, another oligarch with a kind of business empire spanning metals to media and banking. And it was partly Igor Kolomoisky who made Zelensky into a famous TV star because Zelensky's show appeared on Kolomoisky's TV channel and Kolomoisky's TV channel gave him loads of favourable coverage during the election campaign. And there are several Kolomoisky advisors and staffers in Zelensky's staff, including most controversially his former lawyer, who's now Zelensky's chief of staff. This was a former lawyer who represented Kolomoisky in a case involving a bank which Kolomoisky owned with another businessman which the Ukrainian authorities under the last administration had to nationalise because the regulators found an enormous hole in its balance sheet worth $5.5 billion, or nearly 5% of Ukrainian GDP. 
money that was allegedly fraudulently lent by the shareholders. And the big question, I think, hanging over Zelensky is whether he will shake off the influence of Kolomoisky and stand by the reformist achievements of his predecessors, most notably the cleanup of the banking system. Okay, that's really fascinating. I guess that ultimately it all leads for many people to a very big question about this. Is there anything that Zelensky could actually do between now and November next year that could end up affecting Mr Trump's re-election chances? Well, given his desire to stay out of this fight, I think they will do absolutely everything not to respond to Mr. Trump's desire for a deeper investigation into Burisma, the gas company, or what Hunter Biden did for the gas company, or what Joe Biden did or didn't do in terms of pressuring Ukrainian prosecutors to investigate or not to investigate. And then the same applies to the 2016 election. One doesn't know, though, whether other allegations may come out about Burisma and about Slachevsky and how he got his licenses, etc., etc. Or conversely, that more details will come out about how Mr. Trump, and particularly those who are operating on his behalf, particularly Rudy Giuliani, have gone round trying to rake up dirt and find evidence of wrongdoing by Mr. Trump's opponents. And The extent to which they've done that may open Mr Trump up to charges that he's abused his power, or at least the people working for him abused their power, maybe even broke the law. And without knowing, of course, what the outcome of the impeachment inquiry will actually be, I wonder if it could, ironically, turn into one of those stories that a little bit like Hillary Clinton's emails just continues to pop up, die away, pop up all throughout the campaign and potentially have an impact on the outcome in the way that it seemed to in her case. Yes, I think so. And in a way, that may, of course, have been Trump's ultimate ambition, which was to point to some smoke. And unfortunately, there's often smoke in Ukraine. There may not be much fire in this case, but there's always a lot of smoke with a strong smell of graft and corruption. And he may feel that that has done enough already to scupper Joe Biden's chances. But I mean, of course, the impeachment inquiry may come back to bite him big time. So we'll have to wait and see how that unfolds. Ben, thanks so much. And thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our latest episodes on the proposed mega merger between car giants Fiat Chrysler and PSA or how to curb our addiction to plastic, or the latest Harvey Weinstein accuser, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.